Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. You've been listening to us for quite some time now. We're grateful. We thank you. We hit an all-time high of listeners last week. I can't thank you enough. We've got a great show today. Uh, Congressman Thomas Massey of Kentucky, a man who's a sage voice on everything from the virus to the debt in this country. He has been a very strong advocate of challenging both Republicans and Democrats to pay attention to how much money we're adding to the deficit, to the debt. And uh, he's here to talk about things related to the Postal Service. Great uh, story. You're going to want to hear this one anecdote he has. If if you're concerned about what the Postal Service is doing now, you might want to know they did the exact same thing in 2012 when Barack Obama was president. He's going to divulge that with some documents he's brought to the show. Uh, We're also going to talk about a major development in the Russia-Ukraine scandals Here's a headline, and we'll talk about it right after you come back from the commercial break. The Democrats have a Russia spy problem. Yes, they do. They have to. Here's why. The very man that the Senate Intelligence Committee report last week said was a Russian intelligence officer posed a threat to President Trump because he was friendly with Paul Manafort, the the Russian alleged Russian spy. Well, guess what? He had not a few, not a dozen, not a couple dozen, scores and scores of contacts with the Obama administration's top officials in Ukraine and Kiev. This was a two-way relationship. He was providing information as a quote-unquote sensitive source to the Obama administration, and the Obama administration was rewarding him with its own pieces of information, insider information, uh, non-public diplomatic and other information that was valuable to him. Two-way street of trading information. I think the Democrats have some explaining to do, and you know what? I think Senate Uh, Republicans, the people who approved that Senate intelligence report, Marco Rubio, Richard Burr, they owe us some answers too. How could this be a problem for Trump and not be a problem for Obama? We're going to tackle that in a second. But first, we're going to go to our commercial break. Uh, As we always do, listen, we love the people who support this show. Advertisers and sponsors make what we do at Just the News and John Solomon Reports possible. If you love what we do, show that love to our great advertisers and sponsors buy their products, buy their services, sign up for their offers. They make all sorts of great discounts for just being a Just the News family member. And uh, we hope that you support them. You're going to hear from a few of them right now. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about that Russia spy problem that should be plaguing the Democrats. Temp check. 
What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. In a few minutes, Congressman Tom Massey of the great state of Kentucky is joining us. He has been an important voice, sometimes even at loggerheads with President Trump and his own party, Republicans, because he has been concerned about wild spending in America, not only during coronavirus, but even before that. And uh, that is uncomfortable for some members of Congress who do not want to address the rising debt, the rising uh, deficits that America has allowed over the last two decades since we last had a balanced budget under the Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich regime of the 1990s. Uh, $27 plus trillion in accumulated debt, which, by the way, is more than the entire annual GDP gross domestic product of the United States, Congressman Tom Massey. He's been consistent on this from the moment he walked into his uh, office in 2012 on the wave of the Tea Party elections that year. He has a debt clock in his own congressional office. I'll tell you about that. This is a man committed to getting this debt down so that we don't hand off a crushing and unsustainable burden to our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and our great-great-grandchildren. He's thinking ahead, and he's here to talk about what went on yesterday at the Postal Service? He's got a big scoop you're going to want to hear about. He's also going to make a personal revelation about coronavirus. You're going to want to hear that because it may be a sign of what really was going on early in this pandemic, something that maybe the U.S. scientists and the government haven't told us about yet. It probably was here earlier and much more widespread, according to Congressman Tom Massey, and he's going to back it up with his own personal story. First time he's told this. Stay tuned. This is important. All right. But before we get to that, before we get to Congressman Thomas Massey, we're going to focus for a second on a scoop that we have uh, this morning on justthenews.com. If you haven't seen it, go check out the site. We uh, have obtained hundreds of emails, interview reports, internal documents from the Robert Mueller Russia investigation that show a Ukrainian man who the Senate Intelligence Committee just last week claimed was a Russian intelligence officer, a la a spy, a threat, uh, a business partner of Paul Manafort. Uh, The Senate committee focused on the relationship with Manafort and the fact that that posed what the Senate report, this is a Republican-led committee, but a bipartisan report, a grave threat Konstantin Kalimnik posed to Donald Trump because he was friends with Manafort when Manafort was... Uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager in the summer of 2016. Well, here's what our documents show. If he was a grave threat to Donald Trump because he had a couple of contacts with Paul Manafort while Paul Manafort was running the Trump campaign, the Democratic uh, group, the State Department, the Obama-Biden State Department, members of the Democratic Congress, they have a bigger problem. Why? Those documents I just mentioned, those hundreds of pages of documents, by the way, put them up on the site, go to the dig-in tool on the store. You can download all of them, read them yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. They show Konstantin Kalimnik, that Paul Manafort associate, that alleged Russian intelligence officer identified by the Senate 
Intelligence Committee report just last week had hundreds of contacts with the Obama State Department, with the U.S. Embassy in Kiev from 2012, 2013, all the way up into 2017. He was treated as a quote-unquote sensitive source, according to these documents, meaning he was an informer to the State Department, somebody they trusted to give them information about what was going on in Ukraine. He also uh, was getting information back. It was a two-way street. You'll see these amazing uh, emails that I've put up where State Department officials, usually on their official State Department account, are feeding Kalimnik, now designated a Russian intelligence spy, a Russian intelligence officer, if you believe the report. Uh, they're feeding him information about the inner workings of what's going on at the State Department, about meetings that went, took place and the readout that Americans had on these meetings affecting Ukrainian policy. There's even a very negative, pejorative uh, email from an ambassador in Africa who was friends with Konstantin Kalimnik during this time, kind of uh, putting down or, or poo-pooing the new Obama-Biden ambassador who was named to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Remember her? She's the ambassador that President Trump fired and now, and then she became a witness for the Democrats in the impeachment hearings earlier this year. Uh, well, her own colleague, a, uh, an ambassador from Africa, wrote Konstantin Kalimnik saying he didn't think she was that good, that she was uh, testy and uh, not always prepared. I forget the exact language. You can read the actual emails, but uh, this is an important story. Why? If, as the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, claims, Konstantin Kalimnik is a Russian intelligence officer and he posed a grave security threat to the Trump campaign because of his ties to Paul Manafort, because Paul Manafort shared some polling data with him while he worked for the Trump campaign during that short window when Manafort, then the Democrats, the State Department, the United States government, they have to have the same problem, the same grave threat. Why? They were in constant contact with this man. They were feeding him information. He was feeding them information. Uh, these pages are uh, of documents are irrefutable. You can look at them yourself. You can see the two-way relationship, the praise they were giving Kalimnik. You can see Robert Mueller knew all of this. He interviewed two of the State Department's chief political officers in the Ukraine embassy who admitted they used this guy as a source. They gave him information. He gave them information. Uh, it can't be that it's a threat for Donald Trump and then it can't be and then it's okay for the Obama administration. There can't be that double standard in the intelligence community. So today, uh, just the news, myself, we've put up this document so you can read the documents yourself. You can look at what was going on in real time and you can determine for yourself. Was he really a Russian intelligence spy? You would think our State Department would know that. The CIA would warn them. Um, uh, and if he was one, if you come to the conclusion that, yeah, it looks like a Russian intelligence spy. By the way, Konstantin Kalimnik has long denied he's a Russian intelligence officer. He acknowledges he went to one of the language schools where Russian intelligence officers are trained, but said he came out as a lawyer and a translator and not as a, a spy or a military officer. So he's long denied it. Uh, he was indicted by Robert Mueller for obstruction of justice in the Paul Manafort case, never arrested. He's a free man still. And he's never charged in the Mueller investigation as a spy, as an intelligence threat. He's purely just accused of trying to tamper with witnesses and obstruct justice in the Manafort case. So Mueller didn't feel strong enough about calling him a spy. Uh, you have to ask yourself the question, is the Senate Intelligence Committee wrong because the State Department felt comfortable dealing with him? Or if the Senate Intelligence Committee is right, and Kalimnik is, 
a Russian intelligence officer. The Obama-Biden Democratic team now has its own Russia spy scandal. Read all about it at justthenews.com. The story went up this morning. A lot of people are talking about it. More important than my story, as we always do on our journalism at Just the News, we put up all of our source documents so you can download them. These are documents directly from the files of Robert Mueller and his team from the Russia investigation. They're government stamped. You'll see the bait stamps from the special counsel's office. They're unredacted. They're unblemished. They give a real-time account of the State Department's detailed and involved relationship with a man named Konstantin Kilomenik, who the Senate Intelligence Committee now claims is a Russian intelligence officer. Read up on that. It's an important thing. It's the latest twist in uh, what has become this ongoing Russia scandal where Democrats make allegations, and it turns out they have the same problem or worse in their own backyard. Christopher Steele, remember that? FISA court, remember that? We've talked about all of those boomerangs uh, on this show. This is the new boomerang. It may be one of the more serious ones because either the intelligence community in the form of the Senate Intelligence Committee is misleading the public, overstating the threat, or we need a damage assessment to find out what, what, what happened at the State Department, how they could have been working with an intelligence Russia, Russian intelligence asset, uh, hostile foreign power, and not know it and be sharing such information with them without any uh, scruples or hesitation. Uh, that's the story we have. We want you to go check it out at justthenews.com. And when we come back, yep, it's time. Congressman Thomas Massey of the great state of Kentucky, he's going to tell us what went on, the inside skinny, what went on at the Postal Service hearing yesterday. Is this Democratic cry of ballot slowing down by the mail, mail service just another red herring, just another bogus scandal? He's going to tell you about that. He's going to tell you why the Postmaster General needs to tighten up spending and get the Postal Service to run more like a business. And then he has a very personal revelation to make about his own experience with COVID-19, the coronavirus, and what it may say about the larger American response we had during the pandemic. You're going to get that directly from the man himself, Congressman Thomas Massey, in just a few seconds. But first, let's hear from our great sponsors and advertisers. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, Congressman Thomas Massey of the great state of Kentucky is joining us. Congressman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, John. Uh, it's a pleasure. You had a busy day yesterday, a long, long hearing on uh, the Postal Service. I wonder if you could give us your top line of what you witnessed and uh, what you think the Democrats' intentions were yesterday. Well, they've got uh, a few basic theses that they're trying to advance in their conspiracy. They've got this conspiracy theory. Uh, the one of the three that I tried to dispel yesterday was that these sorting machines, somehow t taking these mach sorting machines out of the buildings was some kind of part of a vast conspiracy. 
So I read them during my five minutes and submitted for the record two press releases from 2012 when Obama and Biden were running the country. And when there was a, an election to reelect the president, uh, they shut down nine sorting facilities in the state of Kentucky, including one in Lexington, Kentucky. That's our second biggest city in Kentucky. And uh, I read the statement from the postmaster general at the time and uh, <laughs> basically asked the uh, chairman of the, of the post office there, Mike Duncan, is this was this part of some vast conspiracy? And of course it was. Uh, <laughs> and it was an yeah, election year, too, right? 2012 was an election year. That's right. It was 2012 and they shut down most of the processing, the mail processing facilities in Kentucky. How about that? And, uh, and we know before everybody went to mail-in ballots, the folks that tended to vote by mail-in ballot were the elderly, and they tend to be conservative. Right. So uh, when we had a true absentee system here in Kentucky. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, in fact, for uh, the Republicans have always done well on the absentee uh, ballot for, for many, many years. Um, what well, they, they had two other theses that they tried to advance. They, they have this chart that shows the mail slowing down, uh, mail deliveries recently slowing down. And they said, well, this is the changes from the DeJoy changes right. that he's implemented. The problem is their chart shows a slowdown two weeks before he did anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Gary Palmer, he was great. He showed a picture of the burned out post office in Minneapolis. And he said, right. does this have anything to do with delays from the riots? Of course. So they, wow. they, you know, there's lots of elements to their conspiracy theories. Uh, hopefully we dispelled several of them, or if not all of them in that hearing, but you know, the media is not going to report that. Yeah. Well, we're going to report it. That's for sure. Here at Justin News, we, um, these are exactly the sort of things that, um, being able to go back and show, you know, really what's going on here. And I, th I think I really want to get your assessment. I mean, the postal service has been financially ill for a very long time. And we now seem to have a postmaster general that wants to get it on its feet, make it competitive, make it, uh, right-sized and it's running into resistance. And I assume that there's some political, clientele that the Democrats are trying to protect here, right? The unions that are often Democratic leaning. Is it, What's your assessment of what the Democrats are trying to achieve here? Obviously, they're going to try to create another scandal where one doesn't exist. But uh, right. are, is there an effort here to save uh, uh, or to do favors for postal unions that are longtime Democratic constituents? Well, they don't know what they would do with the $25 billion that was in the bill that was passed Saturday. Such a By good the way, point. Pelosi, but I suspect they would bail out the uh, the pensions. And so that's why they're trying to advance it, because they haven't been making the pension payments that they're supposed to be making. They're supposed to they call it pre-fund. I call it fund um, their pension systems and they haven't been doing that. So, yeah, there's there's some interest there. By the way, we voted on the bill Saturday and then we had the hearing on Monday. The Pelosi's taken this, you know, vote for it to see what's in it to a whole new level. She told us to vote for it so we can have a hearing on it. Yes. How about that? And remember when they came to power, they promised they were going to follow the normal process, right? Hearings before legislation. I right. guess I guess they lost the track of that already in two years. By the way, there are, I'm on the, the committee, the oversight committee that has jurisdiction over the post office. And so I've sat on that committee for seven and a half years. It's somewhat like the Amtrak committee I served on. I call it the Amtrak committee. It's the rail subcommittee of transportation where we, we have these hearings. 
we express our righteous indignation that they're not making money <laughs> right. and that they need to make changes. And then we don't make the changes. I've watched this for seven and a half years, whether it's Amtrak or whether it's the post office. Kind of feel like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, don't you? It is Groundhog Day. And speaking <laughs> of Groundhog Day, six months ago, they were saying the census was where the conspiracy was That's because right. we have oversight over that, too. And they drug in Wilbur Ross, who's a lot who's a lot like the Postmaster General DeJoy that we have. And that he's just a straight up business guy. Like he's not even capable of running a conspiracy. He's just <laughs> he just wants to run him. a business. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's. I think the American people are smart enough to know uh, by now. I mean, the boy crowds wolf only so many times before the public realizes that they're getting sold a bill of goods. But um, this issue of the postal service and its viability and its practices and its desire to always be subsidized or assisted or helped. Um, do you think we're at a tipping point now where the Trump administration through through the new postmaster general is going to try to force this entity, which is important, essential to America, uh, to run like a business and less like a, a dysfunctional government agency? Well, I see no political will to do so in Congress. Wow. In fact, we've passed reform bills out of our committee and they won't they won't put them on the floor, whether it's a Democrat or Republican in the speaker's chair. Wow. They just don't want to make the hard decisions. Look, there's no one silver silver bullet that solves all the problems at the post office. Right. Nobody wants to talk about you know, closing down even more post offices. Nobody uh, wants to talk about possibly, you know, cutting back on service. Nobody wants to talk about possibly raising the price of a, of postage. By the way, it's constrained at the price of inflation, and the government lies about the pri price, the rate of inflation, and uh, and so they can't raise the price to meet the cost. Most of their uh, the slack that's been taken up from the loss of first class, you know, mail. Because that's gone down. Now you pay your bills online. That was the one reason that you could, you might not drop your mail when you took it out of the mailbox. There might be a bill in that stack of junk mail. Right. Well, now, now most people pay their bills online. You can even do DocuSign. You, you know, you can sign documents online. So they've lost that first class uh, business. It's just dwindled. Now they're carrying packages. But the problem is. So we pay, we pay like the CEO at the post office, you know, maybe $250,000 a year, but the CEOs at FedEx and UPS are making millions of dollars a year because they're really good at it. Right. And so the post office is carrying the packages for FedEx and UPS that aren't profitable, you know, like, so, <laughs> you know, get, you gotta, yeah, they get the fall gotta, off, off the table stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's got to be a lot of hard decisions made. And, and uh, you know, I we had a behind the door closed meeting with the previous postmaster general. She had a bunch of suggestions and there were Democrats and Republicans in the room. And I made the suggestion that there's 435 congressional districts. What if we all just picked one more post office to close that didn't need to be open? Because right. we we all know about one in our district. Right. right. And. Oh, everybody got mad at me in that room. Republicans, You were the Democrats. skunk at the party, weren't you? <laughs> yes. I was like, all right, well, okay, I won't suggest that again. Wow. 
it's um, we just keep spending ourselves into oblivion. And that's one of the things you know, when you look at your career, sir, uh, you've 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 been a, a sage voice for a long time, whether Republicans are spending the money or Democrats are spending the money about looking at this mounting debt and at this sort of unsustainable size of government, which actually, quite frankly, really began under George W. Bush because we, you know, we had a balanced budget in the Gingrich Clinton years. Um, do you see anyone on the horizon capable of taking this on and slowing down the the debt and trying to bring us back to a balanced uh, budget like we had in the in the late nineties? I was having this conversation with my colleague Warren Davidson from Ohio. He's representative there, right? And he he said, you know, these policy policies are great if you're an accelerationist, <laughs> or or a collapsitarian, yeah. Uh, because I think that's where we're headed. Right. There was no calculation done to decide that we should spend $4 trillion, which is probably about what the tab is now on this virus. Right. So now that there's no constraint, the next thing that comes along, there's not going to be any limit. Literally nobody said, hey, I think this is too much money. I had some people trying to convince me on March 27th that I shouldn't ask for a quorum or a recorded vote. I should just let this slide. And I said, $2 trillion, that's insane. And the argument to me was, well, we're making it so big so we don't have to come back and vote on it again. We saw how well that worked, huh? <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't six weeks until we were back, yeah. you know, plus and up part of it. Oh, by the way, John, this, uh, this didn't get much play on Twitter and some people didn't believe it. But I put a picture of a $1,200 check that went to Oslo, Norway, to a rich Norwegian citizen. <laughs> You're and kidding. I am not kidding. Oh, my he gosh. Hasn't, he hasn't worked in the United States since 1974. Oh, gosh. Okay. Send that my way. We'll put that up on Just the News and people will. Uh, it's just yes. such a symbol. It's a small story that speaks volumes about why our government is in such financial disarray. Wow. <laughs> He doesn't. He makes so much money he wouldn't even qualify for the twelve hundred dollars. <laughs> but check he got it anyways. A U.S. citizen. Wow. He doesn't have a green card. He's not a dual citizen. Just by virtue of paying into Social Security in the sixties and, and early seventies, he wow. got this twelve hundred dollar check. Unbelievable. Well, that shows you what's wrong. I mean, the I would just remember a time. You know, when I came to Washington, I, I the very first lawmaker I met in Congress was a old Wiley senator from Wisconsin by the name of Bill Proxmire and his claim to fame he was he was a liberal but his claim to fame was he never had to spend more than a thousand dollars to win re-election and he didn't feel yeah. like the United States government needed to do much more either and he would he had an award called the Golden Fleece Award that would highlight you know a ridiculous thing like the check you just you just mentioned to the rich Norwegian uh, and and this was a Democrat that was concerned. And I remember I sat with him. He was just retiring. He was about to get his little cubby at the Library of Congress where he was going to study for a year post-retirement. And he said to me, uh, I used to tell reporters when they came down uh, to follow the money and you'd get a great story. Now you have to follow the flood of money because you might get drowned in it. And I really worry about the future <laughs> of this country uh, that we're, we're spendaholics. And, you know, that was a liberal progressive Democrat from Wisconsin that had that concern. And Today, you know, we now have a, uh, a national debt that exceeds our GDP by a good margin. And uh, that was always the crossover tipping point that people said, we can't get there. We won't let it get there. And we let it get there. So w what can we do? What can Americans do? What can members like yourself do? Uh, how do we get this issue of the crushing debt back on the table uh, in front of the American people? 
Well, the decision to spend is the decision to tax. Like you have to tax people at some point if you spend the money. I, I think Republicans get too focused on what the current tax rate is, and they think that's – but the actual real tax rate is how much the government is spending. spending. Yeah. Because they're either – even if you had your money locked up in a safe, they, they are taking from it by diluting it when they print the money. Or they are going to uh, there's going to be inflation later, and they're going to take it from your Social Security because that's priced in real dollars, and the cost of living increase is never really the cost of living increase. Great point. So people need to focus more on spending, and and frankly, less on the tax rate. You know, you mentioned a liberal who was <laughs> who was concerned about wasted money. I uh, when I came in in 2012, oh, 2013. Simpson Bowles was still like still this notion that was still out there. And right. we met with him. We the freshmen who came into Congress that year, we got to meet with him and they explained it. And it made so much sense to me. And then like nobody ever mentioned it again after that. Isn't that amazing? Went. Yeah. And there were a lot of good ideas in there. I mean, not, not everyone would agree with all of them, but at least there was a starting point. And uh, right. we, it just doesn't you know, you don't even. It doesn't even come up in the daily conversation when you're talking to lawmakers or the OM, OMB or anyone. It just seems as though we're just resolved to uh, spending whatever we need to spend. And, and we may be, I, I want to ask you this question because you, you've raised yeah. this in, in some of your interviews and talks. Um, with all the money we put on the street, there's a real danger next year or the year after of inflationary pressure on this economy, isn't there? I, I think there's a great danger, not just because we're, loading the money cannon and and shooting it (laughs) i don't know which senator some senator uh, used that term and i love it the money (laughs) cannon but there's something else going on and uh production in factories went down and still hasn't fully recovered right like we are behind in terms of like just manufacturing appliances we're like a million units behind in this country wow Uh, and the pipeline is constrained and you're already starting to see it. Go, go try to buy a deep freezer. Yep. Or, you can't find them. Uh, yeah. Or even a dishwasher or a refrigerator. When you do find them, the price has gone up a yep. hundred bucks. Yeah. And, and that's going to, it's going to <laughs> because we've had this cramp in our own production pipeline, that's going to probably force us to buy more stuff from overseas but uh, other countries have had this sort of problem. So we're seeing less production at the same time we're seeing money injected into the market. So I think it's for real this time. I think the inflation's coming. Yeah, yeah. And that means all those low interest rates, all the things that people have enjoyed to making this economy so successful for the last four or five years and uh, will will go away quickly because interest rates obviously are the first line of defense to, to try to slow inflation. So fascinating um, element to, to, to watch. I want to switch to another subject which you've been um, very uh, instrumental on and in talking about and educating the American people and that is the COVID crisis, the coronavirus, the pandemic. Uh, first off, I have heard that you had recently some antibody tests. Is that correct? That's correct. What did you uh, when, and your wife find out? Yeah, so uh, when my friend Louis Gomert found out he had COVID, I went down to the basement of the Capitol to see the house physician. I said, I'd like one of those tests, too. 
And they asked me when I'd interacted with Louie last, and they said, well, we don't think you're high priority. You're going to have to wait two days to get the test. So I'm like, all right. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay. Well, and they said, by the way, I was sick in January. I'd like to get that antibody test. And uh, they said, oh, okay, well, there's no line for that. We can give that to you today. So they gave it to me, and a week later they came back, and they said, not only do you have the antibodies, you've got three times the level of what would be considered a robust response. Wow. And fascinating. I, I, you know, in January, and I know there are lots of people saying, I think I had this in December, in January. I don't doubt any of them now because I was sicker than a dog for four days. I don't go to the doctor when I get sick, but I actually went to the doctor in January. No kidding. Yeah. And because I laid on the couch, I felt like a truck had run over me for four days. Mm. And they now I don't know if this is related, if this is causal, but they gave me a shot of Rocephin, which is a very strong antibody. Right. for uh, Usually they give it for pneumonia. Yeah. They gave me Rocephin and they gave me um, uh, antihistamine, loratadine, and I'd already been on a zinc cold therapy, but I felt better within hours. No kidding. Wow. So then I thought, well, you know what would lend credibility to me having this in January is if my wife got tested and it turned out she has it because she I gave her my sickness (laughs) and she got sick a week after I was sick in January. And um, so she went and got tested. And lo and behold, she has the antibodies. Wow. So So now we're having our daughter. They've already drawn the blood on our daughter who's 16. She got sick a week later if, and her symptoms were, was a dry cough for about six weeks. So if, if it turns out my wife and I and our daughter had this thing, uh, all had this thing, it, I'm almost certain it was in January because that's the only time all three of us have been, been symptomatic sick, right? yeah. or any of us have been symptomatic. Yeah. Mm. What does that tell you about our response? Yeah. Uh, I, I think when we wind this back, it probably was here earlier than we knew. And yes. and uh, have we? Uh, you've said this probably many times before, but now that you have your, your own empirical evidence in your own body, uh, did we overreact? Did we over uh, crank down this economy for no good reason? Well, the, n- neither the Democrats nor the Republicans want to admit it was here in December and January. Yeah. Because you go back, Pelosi was walking around Chinatown in February That's trying right. to convince people yeah. you know, this, this wasn't anything to worry about. Right. And and, okay. and uh, Joe Biden was saying it's xenophobic to close down our borders to, to, right. to both Europe and China. He was, uh, he was on the other side of this issue before he suddenly got uh, where he is today. So, and, and 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 by the way, the on the Republican side, Trump shut down you know airports. Right. They were testing everybody that came from China. Meanwhile, I've got a, a business guy who called me up. He said, "You do realize my partner just threw, flew from Africa, and he said like the plane was full of people coming from China, China. to get to the United States. They, just they worked were around it through yeah. Africa." Yeah, because they knew nobody was going to stop planes from Africa That's to the right. United States. Right, politically incorrect. Right. So, but the Republicans want to maintain that the the lockdowns Trump did had some effect. The reality is, I don't think there was a patient zero in Seattle. I think there were a thousand patient zeros, wow. and and I think there were a million package zeros. Right. right. We receive a million a million packages a day, of course, you know, from China. 
overnight, like the DHL facilities in my district, you know, the North American hub for DHL. And if you order something overnight from China, it comes from DHL. The um, when you look back, we've spent tens of billions of dollars a year on NIH to prepare for these sort of scenarios. We have the CDC. We've got um, all the different, you know, preparedness uh, councils and committees and commissions. Uh, but we really didn't have any plan for this, did we? Well, they had a plan for something much worse. See, there's right. a plan for everything. They just deployed the wrong plan. <laughs> wrong plan. They deployed like the Ebola plan. Right. Uh, you know, where, where our civilization was at risk. Right. And, uh, it was the wrong plan that they deployed. The political scientists at CDC are, are out. They're the ones who have control of the microphone. Right. Uh, you know, within government, you find, you can find pockets of competency. You can find people who really care about their jobs and they're mm -hmm. qualified. Sure. And I expect there are some of those scientists at CDC who are just, suffering at all of the misdirection that the the press people have sent out from there like for instance john they said for for the longest time who and cdc were saying well we don't really know if having caught the virus confers any sort of immunity to you right like once you've recovered that would defy almost everything we know about viruses if That's what right. they were saying was yeah. true, right? And yeah. the reason they didn't have any evidence is they weren't looking for it. Yeah. And the reality is I think these antibodies last a very long time. If, in fact, this is one of the uh, personal takeaways that my wife and I have. See, we believe we had it in January, and here it is August, and we both have antibodies. And so uh, we so believe – they last much longer and that it would be ridiculous. The The Democrats say, oh, you know, you need to follow science and believe in science. Well, everything we know about viruses says that when your body does have an immune response, that that immune response doesn't last for a day. It lasts for some period of time. That's it's, right. It's it's usually a, a good long time. And then the second, if you do catch it again, your response is going to be uh quicker more robust and your symptoms will be less less that's right yep you get it so, that's that's just a natural epidemiology of of uh of vi uh, viruses uh, we, we've had that same and this is a respiratory virus at its core so we're very familiar with respiratory viruses and how they run the country and when they run out do you feel like when you look at the data now, we had, you know, we had the original surge and the lockdown, and then we had sort of the resurgence uh, in the early summer, and now everything seems to be in all the places that um, have had the virus. It, it seems to be slowing down both in terms of mortality and in terms of caseload. Do you, wh what do you take from the data that we have out there today? Are we at the end of this? Are we at a pause? What does your expertise tell you about this? Look at any country, pick any country you want, whether it's Italy or Sweden or UK or even Germany, pick any country. We are near the end of this. There's nothing that those countries are doing that would explain the data that we're seeing. Right. Like it's tapering off. And we've been able to slow down the spread in states like Kentucky, Florida, Texas, California, You. It was a, it was an absolute failure in New York. I think it just yeah. more or less burned itself out, unfortunately. It yeah, yeah, with big um, consequences. Yeah, and and that's and it's very sad. But the reality is that there were already 
a thousand patient zeros in New York, I think, by the time they started trying to, there was one in every apartment building, right. I believe. Right. And one on every subway. So it just spread time. so quickly. Yeah. So, but what you're seeing in all the other states is we're basically going to where New York went at a slower rate. So the hospitals aren't being overwhelmed. We've learned stuff about ventilators that maybe that's not the best solution for everybody and uh but we're basically going there i i would say john and and people get mad when i say this but as soon as the lockdowns stop if as soon as we go back to normal this thing is over in 30 to 120 days wow and until then we're just prolonging that yeah i'm slowing it down it just takes a natural course because that's what respiratory viruses do uh, from all the medical experts we've had on this show they, they basically said listen we can slow it down you can take some burden out of the hospitals which is a good thing when you're if you don't have the right equipment but this is going to run its course and by the time we get the vaccine you know we'll have that sort of immunity that a, a natural uh flu virus you know creates if, if people don't get the shot and so it's going to be very interesting to see, but I think your predictions and your your assessment is the uh, the rising assessment of even the medical experts who might have had a different alarmism early on. If I could pivot to one more question, I know you're very busy, yeah. you got a staff, but I want as you look back, you've won uh, quite a few elections now, and you, you have a keen sense of where the American people are. Uh, what is the question that this election uh, will rise and fall upon? What what is the question that you think when voters either put in their absentee ballot or go to the ballot box, uh, they're going to be asking themselves in the, in the choice between Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump, Republicans versus Democrats. I'm, I'm not one for big or for catchy slogans, but I did hear one that I think encapsulates this and it's jobs, not mobs. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, uh, and it's not these aren't dog whistles to say that, right. oh, you know, we want our communities to be safe. I, I see the left saying that, but it always comes down to the moderate Democrats, the moderate Republicans and the independents. Right. There's 30, 30 percent on either side are already decided. And and you can affect turnout. But uh, once you've done all the turnout, you can. And, and by the way, I think Joe Biden is not going to be good for turnout on the Democratic side. It's like, uh, who was it? Uh, Matt Gates in his speech last night at the RNC said uh, the the Democratic slogan is hashtag settle for Biden. Right, right. Yeah, I've seen that. Yes. And so, so if there's one thing that gives me hope, it's that that Trump is going to win re-election. It's the the we it's the lackluster candidate that the uninspiring candidate that the democrats have offered up this year yeah and i think the jobs you know uh, goes back to what donald trump's ultimate strength is right the economy was roaring before march and uh the republican approach to the economy of giving regulatory relief tax cuts and uh creating an environment where innovation can thrive uh that that recipe clearly worked because we had a three-year data track to, to show that it worked. And I, I think if you want it to come back from coronavirus, I guess you have to ask yourself, which one of those tracks do you want? Do you want the Obama-Biden track? Because Joe Biden basically embraces the Obama track. Uh, do you feel like the Republicans have that enthusiasm, that get out the vote, that ability to 
uh, overcome whatever mail-in vote shenanigans might go on and, and, and get this over the top for President Trump and for the Congress? Well, I did polling here in Kentucky in my primary. I had a very competitive primary. Right. And uh, I polled Donald Trump's popularity among Republican voters. And uh, the first time I polled it, it was 94 percent. And wow. the second time it was 93 percent. Yeah. And then something else that I saw that I uh, haven't seen before is Mitch McConnell's popularity among Republican primary voters in Kentucky was as high as I've ever seen it because I've polled this before too. Right. In the past, it's been as low as, as 65%. Th this year it was 85%. No kidding. Wow. So people appreciate particularly, I guess, with the judges and other things he's yes, gotten done. Yeah. Judges. And yeah. so I do think there's enthusiasm on the Republican side with, with the notable exception of a few never Trumpers, but look, there were never Trumpers in 2016. Right. And I think, there are actually fewer never-Trumpers now in the Republican Party than there was then. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we're seeing signs of it all around the country, that even people who were suspicious at the beginning have bought into the record, if not the personality. And that, that's— By the way, let me be clear. <laughs> this Donald Trump said I should be thrown out of the Republican Party. Like, I am not, uh, you know, a right. rubber stamp for yeah. the president. No, that's right. And that's— and I've drawn his ire a few times. Now, my Republican primary electorate, even though they they have a 94 percent favorability of Donald Trump, reelected me 82 to 18 in a, in a primary. But I'm just I'm, the only reason I went on that sidetrack is I don't want people to think I've got my pom poms. And, right. a, you know, yeah, I'm you a and Donald the president Trump disagreed on certain issues, including spending. Yeah, right. I'm a realist. And I'm just telling you what I see in the field. And I do I do really hope he wins his reelection. Well, sir, it's, uh, as always, a, an incredible pleasure to talk to you. You're one of the uh, unique voices in Congress because you focused on exactly what you told the American people you were going to focus on when you got your job. And uh, so many uh, so many members of Congress often forget what they ran on. But you've never forgotten that. And I'm deeply grateful for the, for the time you spent with us today. And we hope to have you back. I mean, we'll get you on before the election, see how things are shaping up in Kentucky and around the country. That'd be great. And I hope you could, when they quit locking down Congress, I hope you can come to my office because as soon as you walk in, there's a giant debt clock on the wall that I put there in 2012. So I wouldn't forget what I, I love it. people and why I came there. All right. That's a deal. I'm coming to check that dead clock out. I always love the one in Times Square and uh, I'm going to come see that one as well. <laughs> that's All right. Great. Thanks, John. All right, folks, you've been listening to Congressman Thomas Massey. I hope you've enjoyed it. We're going to be back in a few minutes to wrap things up. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, we have a very busy and fun week ahead of us. Tomorrow, Wednesday, we have a special edition of the podcast coming up. Carter Page, one of the great victims of Russiagate. He's got a new book out. He's got new revelations out. He's going to be our exclusive guest tomorrow uh, on the day that his book is beginning to span across the market. 
He's got a lot to talk about, about what happened personally to him, what it says about the country, how it was carried out, what the FBI and the Justice Department did wrong. He, he and his lawyers had their own personal interaction, believe it or not, with uh, Kevin Kleinsmith, the FBI, ex-FBI lawyer, who's been charged now and pled guilty to, uh, to falsifying a document, making a false statement to mislead the uh, FISA court and the Congress. Uh, he's going to tell, tell us what happened between him and Kleinsmith, what other things went on, what it was like to be accused of, of being a Russian stooge, a Russian spy, a traitor to America, when in fact he, Carter Page, knew he was an asset for the CIA, a hero for the American public, trying to help America's security improve, yet he was falsely accused by the FBI, the Justice Department, who, by the way, both knew the accusations were false, and by the American news media who smeared Carter Page relentlessly as a Russian stooge when, in fact, he was a CIA asset. You're going to hear directly from Carter tomorrow. Stay tuned for that special edition of John Solomon Reports, and then we'll be back to regular programming on Thursday. Until then, uh, be safe, be healthy, enjoy your families, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation we had today with Congressman Thomas Massey, an important conversation about fiscal sanity and an era of spending insanity. All right, that wraps it up. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.